My name is David Orban, and I am very glad to have all of you following the show. Before we start, I want to remind you that even if we are live, you can always watch past episodes both on Facebook and on YouTube, and on YouTube you can also subscribe to the channel. Uh, we also have a Discord community, and I invite you to join on davidorban.com Discord. And finally, if you find the show valuable, as well as the other content that I produce and the knowledge that I share, you are more than welcome to become a supporter on Patreon at patreon.com slash davidorban. Today, we are going to talk about startup ecosystems and venture capital investment with our guest, uh, David Bloomberg. Uh, David is the founder and managing partner of Bloomberg Capital, an early stage venture capital fund based in San Francisco. David is an authority on early stage investing with decades of experience. He founded Bloomberg Capital in the early 90s and launched its first venture-backed fund in 2001. He earned his degrees from Harvard College, the Sanford Graduate School of Business, and INSAD. He speaks French and is proficient in Hebrew and Spanish, I guess also English. And he has also a lot of opinions and perhaps more importantly, some highly relevant data, especially for uh, the entrepreneurs and the investors in our audience. Insights and knowledge about how the U.S. and other countries uh, are supporting the startups in uh, today's very, very delicate times. And what actions entrepreneurs can take uh, to make the specialized domains of supply chain more resilient, how telemedicine, cybersecurity, enterprise software, workflow automation, artificial intelligence must adapt to our current pandemic times. We will also discuss why deregulation and promotion of innovation are so vitally important and why so many of our legacy rules, procedures, technologies, and mindsets resulted in most governments being flat-footed in response to the unprecedented virus pandemic. So, without further ado, welcome, David, uh, to Searching for the Question Live. Buongiorno. Buongiorno, there you go. So, uh, should we continue in? I, I have an Italian channel. You, can, you are welcome to, to be a guest over there as well. I will fall flat-footed uh, if we go into Italian. Just, just like the governments, right? So we have a very uh, diverse uh, uh, audience and uh, we already have uh, people saying hello uh, from what looks like uh, Israel, even if the name is uh, Italian uh, and definitely Buonasera in, in Italian uh, on different channels as you see. Yeah, buon, buongiorno, buonasera. Uh, also uh, from... Uh, 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 Zubair Zanhur Ahmed is very likely to be from Pakistan because uh, a former guest very graciously invited me to share my content on his pages and he has several million followers uh, so uh, we may receive uh, questions from, from unexpected angles uh, uh, in, in, in our desire to uh, share what, what we know. Well, a small fact, so I don't, I don't usually get to say, but it's very, very relevant here. Um, a number of years ago in Davos, I had dinner with the current prime minister of Pakistan, who was then uh, an opposition parliamentarian. Uh, so it's very funny how the world, if you, you keep circling in the right circles, eventually they become prime ministers. 
<laughs> maybe, maybe that is how it works. I don't know. Uh, but uh, uh, definitely, uh, so many of us don't realize uh, uh, how interconnected uh, the world indeed is. And, and it is becoming more and more interconnected. Uh, now, one of the things that we may remark on uh, when we talk about uh, supply chains, for example, is that our pursuit of uh, efficiency as what we wanted to maximize also made them brittle. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and now we realize that uh, uh, strategically important goods have single source origins that are on the other side of the planet. Right. And, and, and and we have to very rapidly reevaluate uh, what that means in current times. But uh, before we do that, uh, let me ask you just uh, a few rapid fire questions. I don't want to spend too much time defining what is venture capital and, and how it works. Maybe it is worth uh, dedicating uh, an entire okay. episode to that. But uh, uh, let's, let's define at least uh, how Bloomberg Capital works in terms of uh, uh, what is, for example, your minimum check size uh, as you deploy capital? And, sure. and has it changed? Uh, uh, is it the same as it used to be or it grew or, or, or became uh, less? Okay. First, um, just a minor correction. You speak in a beautiful, maybe Italian accent. I don't know exactly what the accent is, but it's Bloomberg. The, there's this other famous guy named Michael. He calls himself Bloomberg, but today you're with Bloomberg. Um, Thank you very much for that connection, cor correction. No worries. Uh, so let's start with first venture capital. Venture capital is a, a term of profession, I suppose, that is really nothing more than a financial <clears throat> vehicle, a construct of a long-term closed-end fund of investments <clears throat> invested in by family offices, banks, insurance companies, pension funds, university endowments, others that are trying to invest in the private economy. In other words, private shares, not publicly traded on the stock market, but companies before they go public. So we help startups, typically venture capitalists, invest in the earliest stage companies. Lumber Capital is a classic early stage venture capital fund. We manage over $500 million US in a number of different funds. Um, these funds are usually 10 year funds. The first five years we invest the last five years we're harvesting or helping those companies find suitable exits either through an M&A procedure where they get sold to another company, merge with another one, or sometimes they go public. And then, of course, someone, sadly, they don't make it and they don't survive and they fail. So we have a portfolio. Currently, we have over 60 companies in our portfolio. Mostly, we are geographically targeted to invest in companies originating in the U.S., Canada, Israel, and the EU and UK, um, but we look at companies from all over the world. We're very open-minded. We know that there are brilliant brains um, uh, all over the world, very widely distributed. It's just it's easier to find customers and funding in these core markets where we've focused, and that's why we're um, you know, keeping our catchment basin uh, generally limited to those uh, several areas. Now, the domains you mentioned earlier that are holding up so well in this crisis time, mostly business-to-business -business software, um, very strongly influenced with the foundation of artificial intelligence and in what we call big data. But across the board in FinTech, financial services technology, which is thriving right now in, in many cases, some areas are having trouble. Um, 
cybersecurity, more important than ever now, supply chain resilience, telemedicine, um, predictive analytics, all these areas are areas that are our core investment focus. And um, we have less experience with direct to consumer um, and retail and high capital intensity projects like clean tech or uh, energy or things like that. Um, our team is divided between San Francisco, New York, and Tel Aviv. And again, I said we have 60 companies. They're selling in probably 200 countries around the world. They're very international. They have employees in well over 100 countries. Um, and I think I, the one first thing I'd like to say is I'm really proud of them. We're really grateful to the role that the tech economy is playing in helping the world come out of this crisis. Gratitude is very important value to us. And so we're grateful for what they do every day, the employees, the management, they're, they're resilient, they're, they're doing the right things. I've been going to detail with you um, and we're all in it together. So that's, that's a beauty, beautiful, beautiful part of being in such an international kind of a job. Wonderful, wonderful. And thank you for that premise. Uh, back to my question, minimum check size. Sure, <laughs> now to be practical. All right, we range in size in the first investments in seed and A. We like to lead those rounds or co-lead, sometimes we follow, and usually between 500,000 minimum up to say 6 million um, on a first check. Now that does not mean that's our last check. We often, and most venture capitalists and angel investors will think about or often follow on into other subsequent rounds. So if we lead a series A, we're very likely to invest in the series B and sometimes into the series C, uh, depending on the dilution ratio, the pricing, and the prospect further on for increasing value. Our, our goal is to find companies that can you know, grow to become really unicorns. You know, we want the company to have a, the entrepreneur to have a goal, you know, a company that can be $500 million exit value or more over time. And uh, uh, we have uh, our viewers uh, actively participating. Uh, Muhammad uh, uh, very kindly offered a, a good uh, definition of VC, a private equity investor that provides capital to companies exhibiting high growth potential in exchange for an equity uh, uh, stake. Uh, uh, so that is uh, a, a fantastic Perfect. definition. Uh, Emiliano over from uh, Twitter uh, is asking, what is the difference between crowdfunding and venture capital? Sure. Venture capital is professionally managed institutional capital. We take equity stakes in these companies and we have a fiduciary duty to our investors to help them maximize their returns, be compliant with all legal and tax um, rules and so on and so forth. And we often take a board seat on these companies. Crowdfunding is an interesting alternative. It's a different kettle of fish. It's, it's, it's very di uh, diffuse, decentralized, individual angel investors, not even investors really, sometimes they're consumers who like the product and they'll put a down payment in return to help the entrepreneur get started with the first molds built if they're building a product and then the production costs and so on. But it's not really like venture capital. Sometimes it has led to incredible venture capital stories. The founding of Oculus is a famous one. Um, actually, the, the folks that supported the company at the beginning, though, the consumers who put their faith and their money down early, really didn't get a huge reward. It was venture capitalists and, and others later who put in money that got the real equity. I think now there are some schemes where crowdfunding can give you uh, equity. However, and I don't want to get into details, but 
per David Orban's early point about deregulation, part of the reason that crowdfunding has not taken off as much as it is, is that there are very serious securities regulations in most countries that prohibit it. And the theory that the governments generally go on is that the investors don't know how to protect themselves and they need to be protected from themselves. I don't know if you heard me say this because it is a, a, a fairly brutal uh, and provocative uh, manner that I put it, but uh, those regulators are protecting the incumbents, yes. like the VC industry, with the pretense that the poor are stupid. Yes. So the poor cannot be trusted to put their money at risk like the rich are, who uh, of course, no better, as defined in a very circular reasoning by the fact that they are rich. Well, and I want to just say, it's not always the rich that are being protected, and it's not always the venture capitalists are being protect protected. It is incumbents, as you said it, large businesses who have lobbying power, who have the power to, with the, the ear of the government at their beck and call. It's the large incumbents, large banks traditionally, um, uh, we see this, um, have huge power to protect themselves. And then there's also remember that a lot of these big businesses are targets of lawsuits. There's a, an industry of tort lawsuits, uh, class actions and so on, that make a lot of board of directors very nervous about violating anything in these areas because they can and they are sued. So we have, on the one hand, some people with you know good motives and others with unclean hands suing make and it makes boards nervous and regulators nervous and on the other hand we have the power of regular of lobbyists to influence regulators so from both sides but it's not just purely poor against rich it is well connected and risk adverse against people who are more willing to take risk and may not be as well connected and have less money so it's a multivariate complexity right uh, another um um traditional piece of data around the venture capital industry and you can confirm or, or or not that this is true is that given the statistical distribution of uh, how successful or unsuccessful the investments are going to be for a fund uh, in order to hedge against those that are not going to be successful and where the money needs to be written off yeah. the the ones that are successful need practically necessarily a 10 times return yes. in order Correct. to make the fund uh, overall successful. Is that true in your case as well? Yes, it is. In fact, it's more extreme than that. And let me give you a few numbers. If we have, for example, a fund of $100 million, our, some, our more recent funds are larger, but assume just for sake of argument, the fund is, remember it's a 10-year fund. Now, our investors would seek a two to three times cash on cash uh, return and that equates equates to something like a 15 to 25 percent um, IRR depending on various uh, scenarios so what we need to have is enough investments out of the hundred minus our fees we charge management fees so you have about 75 million dollars out of a hundred million dollar ten-year fund to invest that 75 has to turn back into say two to three hundred million dollars net of fees to pay back to the investors yeah okay and 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 the, and the reason why they they make that calculation is because of course they are also evaluating alternatives yes do we put the money into treasury bonds uh, into 
uh, real estate, uh, stuff that uh, maybe is generating a lower return, but also has lower risk. Correct. And, and, and you have to convince them you are selling the fund to your investors. You have to tell them, no, give me the money because, uh, uh, yes, there is risk, but also there is excitement. And I will, at the end, return you the multiples that you need. Let me try to take this from two points a little bit deeper. Let's go first to the micro of the company and our calculation. So say we become a, a new entrepreneur. You, David Orban, has a new company. We're going to uh, invest in a deal with you. We agree on evaluation. So let's, again, sake of argument, we say, for example, it's $9 million pre, and you say yes, and we put in $1 million. That means that post money, the valuation of the company is $10 million, and we own 10%, and you and your colleagues and employees own 90%. Okay, something that's not terribly realistic, but let's just assume it for now. Now, Maybe our, I'm a good seller of uh, the, the, the equity, right? That's right. And, and most of the time, you need more than a million these days to start a company. But anyway, um, if we own 10%, then remember that that's the first round. Then there's gonna be another round where there's dilution if we don't put in a lot more money. And then another round. So we might be diluted down to say 5% by the time the company has an exit five years down the road with an IPO or an M&A. Now, our 5% has to return us that 10X or more on our million dollars. So it shows you how much the company has to be worth. So generally we need about, since as you said, only probably out of a portfolio of 30 companies, maybe six are really big hits. Two are ginormous, four are great, 20 are okay, and others are maybe losers completely, um, or maybe could be more losers in a portfolio. But those six have to be really strong. So those six have to return, you know, in a scenario, I give you a $100 million fund, sort of $50 million each to get us the $300 million total fund return if we have losses on most of the others. Make sense? Absolutely. So in that scenario, needs to become worth sort of a $50 million slug. So it, it shows you that the companies have to be very quite big. So I, I'd say that to entrepreneurs to help us them understand why we have to get fair value on the investment side at the beginning, because we're both in this together. Now, the other thing is interesting to note is that we early stage investors are most aligned with the entrepreneurs. The later stage investors who come in often put on liquidation preferences, and other terms and, and, and uh, interest rate scenarios paid in kind or sometimes uh, as a lump sum. And those can start to divide the interests of the founders of the company and of various shareholders around the board table and share in, the, in the syndicate. So as an entrepreneur, I urge you all to think that through, work with your early stage VCs, with your law firm and your keen advisors to help you align those interests as best as possible. Sometimes it's inevitable that they will diverge but try and keep them aligned. Um, does that help? Oh yeah. Uh, we have another question from the from the comments uh, around who can or not participate uh, in the VC game. Mm -hmm. um, you said that your investors are institutional. You said pension funds and university endowments and 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 so on, uh, who have uh, billions or tens of billions of dollars under management. Is it conceivable? Is it happening? Is it something that you believe would be desirable if VC firms could take money in a crowdfunding manner? Because you would be then a, the professional investor, but uh, anybody could participate and give you yep. maybe a billion dollars. Okay. So 
governments are very afraid of that because venture capital is considered a high risk asset class. And as you said, uh, governments, I'll be a little bit kinder in my wording, they don't believe that the average individual can evaluate properly the risk and do the diligence necessary as a, a, a cautious, prudent investor on the institutional side would. So most cases, that's not possible. There are a few, I'll name some friends, our crowd, and there's a group in England, I've forgotten their name, you probably know them, that's um, like an angel, there's angelists in the US, which do allow individual investors to participate at a small scale. Part of the risk though, is that if the individuals choose to select, cherry pick the individual deals, they probably are not gonna get enough portfolio distribution to make up for that risk factor that we've mentioned that you need sort of 30 in a fund and six of them are great successes because there are quite a few that will also be losses. Now, remember also, as a venture capitalist, we're on the inside, we're on the board of many of these companies. If you're an angel investor investing through somebody else, you'll have very little information. And when they ask you to re-up for another round, you may not know what to say. You may not know how to evaluate the risks. So we do have inside information, but in this case, it's always legal because these are private companies. The inside trading regulation prohibitions apply to public markets where the government, and rightly so, doesn't want um, you know, certain inside folks to be trading early when the general public uh, trades later on that same information. Very good. So uh, let's uh, move into uh, what should uh, uh, first an entrepreneur and then maybe an investor, or if you want, maybe you can reverse the question too. What should uh, they do in, in, in today's environment yes. where... Um, we don't even know if we will have an economy six months uh, down the road, uh, let alone somebody who is saying, I have a great idea, great team, some traction. I think it is time to go to uh, seed stage investors to um, uh, get uh, professional money after everything, sweat and blood and some money, the money we had, me and my team put in. Yeah. Uh, but here we are. During okay. the pandemic, we cannot even meet them. Uh, how, how can that happen? Well, first of all, I'm happy to report that we just did our first transaction and we're staking in the market. We are not shrinking back. We, we just did our first transaction where we never physically met the entrepreneurs. Everything all right. was by video conference, our diligence, our phone calls. You, welcome to the 21st century. Exactly. So, and and it's, a, it's a healthcare company. It's a digital telehealth related company. So we're very excited. Can't tell you about the name yet, but um, very exciting. Watch the watch our LinkedIn and our blog uh, for that and our website, lumbergcapital.com, if I may be self-promotional. Um, okay, so back to topic. Now, very important delineation. Many people confuse all investments with the public market investments, and therefore they often think about short time horizon. People think about day trading and, oh, I should buy this stock today, sell tomorrow. Generally, that's bad advice for all but the most sophisticated hedge fund um, kinds of traders. Why? Partly, at least in the US, we have differential between long-term capital gains tax rates, which are short, lower, and short-term capital gains, which are higher. So in many cases, you're defeating part of the purpose of investing by frequent trading and the costs and the taxes involved. So venture capital is a long-term asset class. Remember, the venture funds last on average 10 years, and there are holdings that go beyond that. We've had companies, we were held to holders for 19 years in, in one, or 17 years in one case. So we say that the sport of 
day traders is surfing. You're worried about waves and weather and wind and sun. And venture capitalists, our sport is scuba diving. We're worried about long-term currents and <laughs> general temperature and oxygenation, uh, which is a metaphor for cash flow. So now let's go back to um, the what should an entrepreneur do, what should an investor do. We think first take a deep breath. This too shall pass. We most of us, thank God, are healthy, and if we've gotten ill, we'll get healthy. It's a terrible tragedy. I don't mean to diminish at all the pain and suffering of anybody's physical illnesses. So we, we are empathetic with those folks. We want to help them. But as an entrepreneur, putting on that hat, most of us will also survive and get through this. Some businesses will sadly fail. There are many government programs to help try and support some, and there's some cushion. I can go into that in detail later. But I would say for venture capital funds, now speaking very specifically about ourselves, we're institutional investors. We're used to crises. We manage through crises. <clears throat> I've lived through the 2008-09 uh, mortgage crisis. I've lived through the 2001-2003 dot-com bomb crisis. I've lived through 9-11 and other ones back in history. So we know how these things work. And the most important thing is to stay calm, do contingency planning, figure out what your resources are, stabilize those resources in terms of cash flow, make sure in this particular case, which is unprecedented, everybody can work from home safely, um, social distancing, all those things, good hygiene, and make sure that you take care of your employees, your customers, your stakeholders, and your partners. People will have long memories. This, this crisis will be relatively short, but the memories will endure for decades. So I want everybody to really think about their ethics. Don't cut corners. Don't make those easy short-term decisions that are really the wrong thing. I heard somebody say it very well. There's a voice that'll say, this is a tough right answer, and this is an easy wrong answer. Do the tough right answer, okay? Um, and 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 uh, isn't because you know um, uh, the the social contract in 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 various countries has a certain uh, variability. Yes. Even though we ha uh, all live in countries that are signatories to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, in practice, uh, our societies uh, define when you have that right uh, differently and what is your value what is the social contract that defines your value to society varies a lot uh, the 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 10 and now maybe 20 million unemployed in america uh, have uh, have been created through decisions of employers yes. that let them go it was a hard decision well, and 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 uh, if I may, do you believe that that it was aligned with the kind of decisions that you are recommending? Well, what, let me, if I may, hold on. I want to not, I want to not put those entrepreneurs on such a hook. There, governments, whether city or state or sometimes federal, told these companies to shut down. Now, some companies took the measures into their own hands. I mean, our portfolio, all of us, our venture capital firm, 60 of our companies, almost everybody started working from home very quickly. Remote work is easy relatively in this digital software B2B world. So we, we had, I, I recognize we had it easier than, you know, people who have a florist shop or run a restaurant or something like that. Those folks are terribly hurt and I'm, I feel pain for them. It's, it's, it's tragic. Now, a lot of that 
call it generic rule that was pushed, frankly, by epidemiologists, and perhaps they're right, I don't know, I'm not an epidemiologist, but they were arguing kind of a, on a generic basis, we have to shut everything down. And the problem with that is that it, it took away individual choices and individual um, best practices, because often some people know how to do things best at the most local level. I could protect myself by keeping social distance and walking in a park. But sometimes the parks are shut down by the government, even though the benefit of being in the park for my health and my moral, my mental status and all that might be very good. And yet the government has taken that away. So there is some degree of coercion here going on by governments. It's not the entrepreneur is just, you know, closing and firing people. Now, let's go to the, the firing and so on. In our portfolio, we talked with all of our portfolio company CEOs. And I'm so proud of them and grateful to them because they're leading by example. And here's what most of them are doing. They're doing contingency planning early. They did it like six, seven weeks ago. They said, how much do we think it's gonna get if, it, if this crisis lasts? This long, three months, six months, nine months, two months. They did all these scenarios. And then what's the depth of the loss? Some businesses, by the way, are thriving because they're helping where there's more demand in FinTech with getting loans to small businesses, like Lendio is a company we can discuss. Others are really having a suffering, a shortage of demand. The companies that do business travel right now or household moving, like that. So you have a range. Most of the people, though, were first led by cutting their own salaries as CEO and the C-suite. They cut themselves first and deepest. Then they, or sometimes they had across the board cuts, or sometimes they, we used to get to do deferrals, not cuts. Now, some governments don't allow you to do deferrals easily. In the US, it's relatively easy, but in other countries where they're more, well, called patronizing or paternalistic, they don't allow um, a promise of payment. They say, well, if you're promising to the payment and cutting, it's as if you fired them. Okay, different story. Uh, then, uh, or, or regardless of the fact that you are not paying them, you have to pay the taxes right now on the future payments to the employees. Thank you for that addition. I didn't know that, but that's probably makes sense. Um, then there's also another trick we've used and we've said to entrepreneurs, look, if you don't have cash right now and you want to keep the employees and the employees want to stay, say to them, look, I'm going to not be able to pay you your full salary, but you're going to get equity options in the company and those will prove a value on the other side. So they've done a lot of things. Now, the uh, in the U.S., the government is doing these PPP loans. A number of our portfolio companies have taken them out. Others have applied and not heard back. Some are choosing not to take them out for various reasons. And that's giving a little extra cushion. And then other governments in the UK, Israel, Germany, Canada that we're familiar with also have done similar kinds of, I'll call them bridge loans. These are not loans to keep the company in business forever. They are temporary to keep employers hopefully from not firing or laying off too many of their workers. Some um, governments are trying to do innovative things where they say, <clears throat> keep them on part-time and we'll give you some subsidy, which is a very innovative way. I like it because it's shades of gray rather than black or white. Um, in some cases, it's sad because if the government takes over and says, we'll pay for these people, but they cannot work, that's not so, awesome. So what, what would you say to a, a, a portfolio company that comes to you and says, um, our the business model that we both believed in yes. and you invested in is not viable anymore, Okay. We don't think that the new normal will allow it either. Mm. We want to uh, implement a new model that requires 
what is called in the industry pivoting, turning yeah. 90 degrees in a different direction. Yeah. However, in order to implement that, it will take time. In the meantime, our uh, our current team, which is, which we believe is the right team to do the new business model too, mm-hmm. burns cash. Yeah. So we need okay. more and we need it kind of soon. Yes. But we are back at square one. Okay. What do you tell them? There's multiple options. One, we have been doing some internal rounds where we believe in the company's prospects. It's just like you said, the company has a good use of proceeds. It's logical. We see a future for them that is strong. It may may have a temporary dip uh, in between called the J curve, where you're first losing money, and then you'll start to make money later. So we're investing in leading rounds, in fact, uh, that are sometimes inside rounds. We're having our portfolio companies raise money from external CEO, uh, VCs and, and corporate investors. We have several rounds that are closing right now, and many of them are nice up rounds, by the way. So even in this bleak time, good performing companies are having also some, some good exits, not exits, well, yes, even exits, um, but funding opportunities. It's harder for most. And the scenario you laid out, where the company is having trouble, um, maybe you can't raise outside money, okay? First, check with your insiders. And if you're in a really small business, Check with your friends that you know that are well-to-do and know you and trust you as a, as a person because those angels can come in very, very handy. Second of all, you should try and work with your uh, vendors to, to get terms on payment, uh, defer your rents perhaps, and, and conserve cash in a number of ways. We talked about ways to defer uh, salary loads um, and to take advantage of some government um, points. Then there's also the fact that if you're in a SaaS model business, software as a service, those businesses are not suffering as much in terms of dropping of revenue because those are long-term contracts and they're mostly business to business and they seem to be pretty resilient right now. It's the folks that have really touched with retail. Let's say you own a, a, a stadium and you have nobody coming to your basketball games anymore or you run the parking service, the valet service for that stadium and there's nobody coming to those or no concert. Those folks are in the most trouble. So what I, just trying to be helpful, I suggested to the guy who runs the parking valet service, I said, okay, what is needed right now? Delivery, delivery of food. Go do a deal with Delivery Hero or with Uber Eats to supply certified drivers. Because remember, all your valets are presumably already trained as drivers. Go do a deal with a rental car agency and, and say, you've got unused cars. Nobody's renting business travel or vacation travel. Take those cars, get them in the hands of valets and start your delivery service. And one of our companies... Um, Wonder, based in Germany, W-U-N-D-E-R, Mobility, um, can help orchestrate um, that kind of match between driver and vehicle for delivery services. So there are ways to pivot. We've seen companies that used to only deliver marijuana now start to deliver food as well. Mm -hmm. They can have Mm -hmm. the uh, chemical-induced high, and then the munchy feeling can be satisfied (laughs) as well. uh, this morning, uh, uh, I had uh, my, my Italian uh, conversation on live, and uh, uh, my friend Emil Abirashid, who is a journalist following the uh, startup uh, ecosystem, uh, uh, coined uh, a neologism. Rather than pivoting, he called it coveting. Uh, the, 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 the ability to adapt uh, to the reality of COVID uh, uh, and uh, uh, at least survive, but maybe even thrive, because definitely yeah. there will be new needs, new opportunities, and a new 
awareness of our joint ability to satisfy that. Because as you said, being transparent with the various stakeholders, whether yeah, the, sure. the land or landlord for, for rent or the uh, vendor for, for payment uh, or the investor for a new round yeah. is the, uh, the necessary starting condition to finding a, a solution. And today uh, we are in the same boat. Uh, because everybody's impacted by this situation. So uh, yeah. being transparent about that uh, is, is not something that will be met with incomprehension. Everybody yeah. will understand the, the situation. Let me give another example from just from our portfolio, and it probably only applies to American companies or American individuals. Say you're a, a homeowner and a business owner, and you need $100,000, $200,000 for your business but your equity of your home is locked up because in america at least most home mortgages um, are, are set and you have to keep paying the mortgage and then you have some equity that you've built up over time paying that down but that capital is not accessible especially today a lot of banks are reticent to do what are called HELOCs, home equity line of credit so we invested in a company called easy knock based in new york and this company allows you to sell your home to easy knock and stay in that home as a renter for a period of time, one year, two years, three years. So it happens to be a product that was designed prior to COVID, but it is so appropriate for people that find themselves without maybe government uh, support and they need a hundred thousand or whatever their house is worth, some kind of equity to put into their business or pay medical bills or put their kids through school, whatever. They can take the money out, unfreeze that frozen asset of their home value, and then they can stay in the home, rent it, and pay for it just like a mortgage, but they're paying rent, which is often lower, and then buy it back from the Easy Knock company later at a pre-set price that increases with inflation, or sell it into the market if they decide they want to move. So it's, it's, we need to find, allow entrepreneurs to find these unusual flexibility tools to help us all deal with these extreme crises. And it's just, I, I put my hat off to entrepreneurs. They're so innovative. They come up with these incredible opportunities. Let's, we can talk about telemedicine now or supply chain resiliency if you like amazing what some of them are doing to help keep things flowing and keep lives living absolutely uh, let's look at some of uh, the additional questions that came in because they touch upon uh, uh, some of the topics that you you, you mentioned um, uh, emiliano is asking if uh, blockchain can can help uh, in um, setting up supply chains uh, or even uh, tracking funding uh, avoid uh, fraud uh, or uh, making things more efficient, more traceable and inclusive. Uh, is your fund uh, uh, also active uh, in, in blockchain investments? We've, we've looked at many. We have not pulled the trigger on any. We did years ago in the first wave of Bitcoin related companies. We did invest in two that were trying to use Bitcoin for remittances and to use um, uh, Bitcoin and maybe other cryptocurrencies, but mainly in those days it was it was only Bitcoin um, for other um, purposes of spending. It, it turned out that the market in the U.S. was not big enough because the U.S. currency is so strong, so easy to use, so ubiquitous. It didn't really meet the requirements. Bitcoin and crypto, as you know, have mostly taken off in countries where there are problematic governments, risk of expropriation, high inflation, other areas there to protect themselves from, from those um, negative outcomes. I'm a believer in cryptocurrencies, and I'm a even more of a believer, frankly, in the blockchain underlying technology. It's good for some cases, not for all. Most 
not much of blockchain has yet penetrated into large active markets. There are some bank-to-bank um, initial programs that seem to be starting to work well. And I'm, I'm optimistic about the future. We would definitely look at a blockchain deal that came into us for an investment. Excuse me. <clears throat> but I, I know there are a few trials in the, in the supply chain area between like IBM and a, a, manufacturer, a grower of berries called Driscoll's and I think a big consulting firm where they've been tracking supply chain farm to uh, grocery store to check for things like, frankly, diseases born in the food supply chain and so on, traceability and all that. So I think it has a role. It's not playing a huge role yet as far as I know in this COVID crisis, but it's time will come. It'll probably be um, accelerated by this crisis. Yes. Um, now, uh, the VC industry in the U.S. Uh, is about 60 years old, started with Hewlett-Packard and, uh, and the waves of the first uh, um, uh, way to understand that risk capital could accelerate the hyper growth of, of certain uh, classes of, uh, of companies. And then it uh, became uh, more and more sophisticated, structured itself in various stages. And now there are hundreds of uh, VC firms uh, in the U.S., other countries successfully uh, adopted uh, the, the venture capital uh, model as well. We cited uh, uh, the most important ones, Germany, the UK, Israel, uh, and, and others were less uh, successful. A surprising success uh, uh, more recently was in India or in, in China, uh, and uh, there are now unicorns. Uh, the the startups uh, that are still private but are valued more than a billion dollars yes. in those countries as well. Uh, Muhammad from Pakistan is asking a very interesting question and I would add to his. His question is how can he uh, uh, become a VC? But the broader question is how can Pakistan nurture a venture capital, a, a fertile venture capital industry if uh, the conditions are not there yet? Great. Well, I'll, I'm able to go back in history to the last crisis recession. The year was, I think, 1999. Oh, so it was just before the crisis. But I was invited by a group, very famous group here in the U.S. <clears throat> called Thai, the Indus Entrepreneurs, which is made up of Pakistani, Indian, Sri Lankan, um, and other Bangladeshi and other South Asia entrepreneurs who get together for self-help and they get together for education and training and helping pitch to VCs and building their ecosystem. It's a wonderful organization. I highly recommend anybody to join and participate in Thai uh, events. <clears throat> so I was taken on a mission by the leaders of Thai, most of whom are South Asian, to India. And we met with the prime minister and many of the other ministers and business leaders and entrepreneurs. And our message was very simple. A lot of the brilliant Silicon Valley success stories that are, there you go. Wow, how did you find that? Amazing. Hey, David, Orban, you are awesome. That's the picture of us in India. My, my Google works. <laughs> so that delegation was highly successful in helping get the Indian government to understand this equation. Brilliant Indian entrepreneur stays in India, surrounded by, blocked by red tape, bureaucratic hassles, never amounts to anything. Same Indian entrepreneur comes to America, starts a company, gets venture capital, and becomes a billionaire and employs thousands of people and builds great products for everyone. Which future do you want to have? And so what we're saying to the Indian government very politely was, 
get off the back of your own entrepreneurs. Your people are brilliant. They are industrious. They are hungry. They want to succeed. Let them succeed in their own country. And we're happy to have them as immigrants in the U.S., but every country can do venture capital. Every country can become an entrepreneurial hub. Israel was not an entrepreneurial hub um, 40 years ago, or 70 years ago, and that's why I was invited on the, on the Thai delegation. I told the story of, of Israel, how they had been colonized by the British, just like the Pakistan and Pakistanians and the Bangladeshis and the Indians were, and they not colonized exactly, but you understand the point. And they had had socialism um, deployed by the London School of Economics, dons that told countries how to start themselves in the late 40s and 50s and 60s, and they started off on the wrong path. Israel actually started off on the wrong path. It was very hostile to entrepreneurs. Uh, the government owned a third of the economy, the labor unions owned a third of the economy, and the private sector was only one third. Now it's flipped and the private sector has grown dramatically because the government, after a crisis, not COVID crisis, but they had their own banking crisis, the Israeli government nationalized all the banks, the economy collapsed alone in the 1980s, and then they deregulated and they allowed private enterprise and they allowed venture capital and they allowed entrepreneurs to thrive. And so Israel's startup nation boomed. And so we went to tell that story in India, and I don't say it was the de facto um, turning point, but the, the rest of those entrepreneurs had great influence on the Indian government. India did liberate themselves. And now hopefully Imran Khan and the um, you know, government of Pakistan will do the same or is doing the same in Pakistan. It's a long road. It's not easy. There will be failures along the way. There are risks, but it's a risk very much worth taking. And, and, and what is the uh, path for an individual to uh, sure. uh, aspire to be an investor, a VC? Okay. First of all, uh, is that something that one should want? Uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the joke, uh, uh, VCs are uh, sleep just like babies. Uh, 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 They're in, always in, crying. In, <laughs> yeah, they, they, yeah, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but it ends by saying, and they wake up in the night uh, crying. <laughs> well, uh, okay, first of all, I feel it is a total blessing, and I am grateful to God and my lucky stars and my parents and my colleagues and entrepreneurs that I can be a venture capitalist. It is a, and David, you are as well. So it's a very stimulating career. It's never boring. I'm always surrounded by brilliant people, on aspiring entrepreneurs who want to change the world. They have a new vision to do something great. And so it's motivating and challenging and very inspiring, frankly. It's a social mission to, to help them and to be of service. So that's one thing. <clears throat> It can be very lucrative and successful. So that's a nice byproduct. But I like the challenge. I like the fact that I'm never bored. No, no day is ever the same. Um, I believe that, that science plus business together, really, capitalism and science can really help the world move forward. And that's the history of the last 200 years of the Industrial Revolution, powered by the freedom of the stock market, the bond market, and the private markets to invest in new things. Remember, from, two, from the year zero to the year 1800, There was almost no technological change. There was almost no capitalism. There was almost no innovation of scale. And it was only when we harnessed the freedom of money to move around from the agricultural interests, which were almost always um, <clears throat> knights who won their battles, took the land and made the peasants uh, into serfs, <clears throat> that had been the way of capital accumulation in the past. And then with the dawn of the public markets in the UK, in Amsterdam, and a few other places in Scotland, we started to get this movement of capital called now venture capital and public trading markets and bond markets to flow into entrepreneurs who said, 
I can give you a higher return if you let me take this risk of building a new steam engine or a new railroad or today a new computer chip or a software program. So the process is working and it's accelerating. That's why the world is getting so much richer, so much faster. You know, that, that, sorry, I'll, I'll stop. No, 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 no. Uh, but so, so yes, it is, but could it go even faster than it is mm -hmm. because you are a proponent of deregulation? Yeah. Uh, is there a right balance between regulation and and uh, the desire to put out new products and services, or should the government get completely out of the picture, including new treatments and medical devices right. and genetic modification and 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 sure. whatever crazy things that we want to have, sure. but we only want to have when they are safe. So okay. so can we right. trust the private enterprise to always get it right? Let me just ask, how much time do we have left? This is a, you've asked a super great question. It's a, it can go into a thousand directions, but I'll try and focus. Well, uh, let me tell you, it is an extremely enjoyable conversation. We have all the time we want. I also want to be respectful of your time, but um, I told my wife that I am not going to go to dinner because maybe our conversation will run long. So, so I, uh, Now I recall, I have to have a board meeting uh, an artificial intelligence company that starts in about... I would be so proud to make you late for the board meeting because you are having fun in the conversation. <laughs> so I can't stay long, but I will gladly return if you so desire for another session on this. I'll try and do it very quickly, though, and we can maybe get to a few more questions from your audience. Deregulation is extremely important because regulation, as we may have said very in a light form, and I can go into many more details if we have another session, Regulation tends to reward those in power. Regulation may be justified and it may be propagandized and it may be legislated, even with good intention, to help the underdog, the vulnerable, et cetera, et cetera. But very often, unintended consequences tend to reward those tied to government with power, with existing business, and it keeps other folks the opportunity cost of disrupting and moving forward themselves. So it's frankly, often it causes uh, a lack of social mobility. Now, I understand that some regulation is very important. We need it. But just to take the one example from COVID, part of the reason the United States is slow in testing is that we had a very strenuous, very outdated, I would say, formula at the FDA and the CDC, which are some of our healthcare regulatory bodies, on what could qualify as a suitable test for the United States. We had not been willing to accept foreign testing as uh, used in the U.S. So if a test had been done and was successful in France or Japan or India, we weren't necessarily going to be taking that kind of a test and using it for ourselves. So I think we should have some kind of reciprocity. If something has passed uh, regulatory scrutiny in a Western democracy, you know, a place that has rule of law and low corruption, we should probably be able to take some of those um, findings and employ them in our own deliberations uh, and to move it faster. Um, so. It's a long topic. Again, we need some regulation. I would say if I have to do a teeter-totter, right now the world has too much regulation and we need to flip it more toward less in most areas, certainly in the financial services area, certainly in, with regard to entrepreneurial endeavors. But there are certainly areas where we need regulation and we can't get rid of it all. I'm not an anarchist. <laughs> uh, well, uh, the uh, society uh, has an ability to observe itself and uh, and the rules and the regulations are the consequences of this observation 
but the rules and the regulations in turn have to be observed in yeah. order to understand if they are uh, implementing what 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 is needed and i i believe in in emergent uh, emergent phen phenomena right yeah. our our consciousness is an is an emergent phenomenon yeah. uh, and and even though we 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 don't uh, recognize them as as such uh, cities and and uh, uh, corporations and and governments are mm. an ai where the feedback loops are mm. very slow Correct. but uh, still uh, we have little control over what they do. Uh, they have their own ability to perpetuate themselves and pursue their goals. Uh, so uh, I don't know if you can name the company that uh, you are about to 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 uh, start uh, the board meeting of. Uh, but uh, AI is 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 an incredibly important uh, uh, area uh, of entrepreneurship in so many ways, including the ability to analyze. And, and improve regulations themselves. Reg yeah. tech plus AI, I think is gonna be an explosive field uh, soon. So true, so true. Let me tell you it this way. Please have folks look at our website. About at least, I would say half of our portfolio companies are employing artificial intelligence of various sorts to power their engine. Their engine is what helps the algorithms make the right decisions to optimize, to do root, um, planning, to do um, economic forecasting, to um, optimize pay downs of mortgages, to help doctors scan radiological exams, to help plan, uh, plan shipping routes. We see this everywhere. It's so fascinating and it's so empowering for us to be as part of this at this helm of you know, the, the looking forward into the future. I, I sometimes say to, remember to Mr. Khan who wants to become a VC, it's a hard road, it's very worthwhile, um, what I say, it's a little bit like being the captain of a submarine with a periscope up pointing into the future. And you're looking into the future, trying to find that wonderful enchanted island, but watch out to not crash into the reef or the rocks uh, below. So there are risks, there are rewards, but it's a wonderful journey. Uh, uh, David uh, Blumberg, uh, thank you very much for being uh, with us uh, on uh, Searching for the Question Live. And I will definitely... Uh, uh, take you uh, up uh, to to join for a next episode where we will continue uh, this conversation together with our viewers and their great uh, questions. Mille grazie. Thank you, everybody. Be safe, be healthy, be happy. Count your blessings because we have more than we often think about. So uh, thank you for uh, watching this episode of uh, Searching for the Question live and for the numerous questions. Uh, please join our Discord community to uh, further uh, discuss uh, the themes that uh, are covered in, in our episodes. And if you enjoy searching for the question live, you can also become a supporter on Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash David Orban. And uh, see you tomorrow at our next episode. Thank you very much. <music>